Hello and welcome to the Somewhat Sustainable podcast. This is episode six and we're joined by Dominic Winter. Hi Dom, it's great to have you on the Somewhat Sustainable podcast today. How are you doing? Hi everyone. Yeah, good. Thanks, Paul. Good, good. So first of all, before we sort of get fully started and dive into the, the deep end, can you first of all introduce yourself, who you are and what you do at PAL? Yes, so my name is Dominic Winter and I'm the programme manager at a charity called Power UK or Protect Our Winters UK, which is the UK chapter of an international uh, movement of organisations called Protect Our Winters, which is a climate action charity. Okay, so who are POW and what exactly do they do? So POW is a movement of climate action charities that help passionate outdoor people become effective climate advocates to achieve systemic solutions to climate change. So it was originally founded in America. So if you see just POW or um, that's in POW US sort of originally, um, but there's now around 15 chapters globally. So we've also got POW UK, Switzerland, France, Austria, uh, New Zealand. Um, so it's sort of treading in the footsteps of POW uh, US and, and showing that because that was effective, let's, let's bring this movement elsewhere. Um, that people that get involved in outdoors and outdoor sports can be really, really powerful spokespeople for protecting the outdoors from climate change. Yeah, I mean, that's that's amazing. I think part of actually changing the way people are is is actually the advocacy for change. So without that, nothing happens. So who founded POW and why did they found it in the first place? What did they want to achieve? Yeah, so POW was originally founded by an absolutely legendary backcountry snowboarder called Jeremy Jones over in the states um and really it was all about the impacts he'd been seeing and his um feelings about wanting to protect the future of well originally snow sports and him being a snowboarder but i think as it's grown that was sort of 20 years ago 25 years ago that it was founded in the us and over the last 20 25 years it's really grown to encompass outdoor recreation as a whole so you see you know climbers mountain bikers hikers getting involved uh, anglers even so it's become this really broad movement of the entire outdoor community, everyone wanting to protect the outdoors that they enjoy. Um, so likewise, Power UK that I work directly for um, was founded by just a small group of outdoor lovers a few years ago, 2018, that just wanted to protect what they love, their, their outdoor uh, recreation um, yeah. and everything that goes with that. And then it's sort of grown since there. And I think the understanding of the organisation of, this being a good way to engage people on the topic, but it not being just protecting <laughs> outdoor sports and that the impacts of climate change are wider is, is a good opportunity for the organization and, and making it clear that may be where your interests lie, but you know, it's about also um, representing the worst affected by climate change as well. And, and is it sort of the, the snow sports industry, which is going to be most drastically affected because obviously mountain bikers, hikers, you know, yeah, that, that kind of person there, they don't necessarily need snow to be able to do it. In fact, it's probably detrimental towards their sport in some ways, right? Yeah. So within the outdoors community, outdoor sports community in Western Europe, probably the like the snow sports is obviously the most direct link, which is why sort of each chapter kind of tends to start within snow sports with yeah the impact on the snow line and um, direct reduction in the snow volume, the, the length of the season. For example, the, the ski season is already about a month shorter than it was 50 years ago. But like it definitely, definitely is impacting lots of other sports. So mountaineering is becoming less safe um, with 
mountain biking and other trail sports is often more about like forest fires and the air pollution that that brings and the direct damage to uh, the riding terrain. In the UK, we're actually going to have wetter winters as well. So we'll get more mudslides and uh, more mud and more landslides. Sorry. So yeah, like it will definitely impact all of these. But I think with snow sports, it's the most direct sort of danger to whether it exists in its current format in the future as to yeah whether ski resorts will be economically viable, whereas like your local woods will still be there to to run in. Yeah, no, I, it's interesting you say that, and and you've actually already touched on there about the the snow line and the sort of the seasons becoming shorter. What is the snow line like for our listeners? How how do we understand that? Yeah, so that's kind of the altitude or elevation that snow is remaining at so that you can use it. So generally, like you need uh, a reasonable base for you to be able to ski on it. Like a lot of studies use something like 30 centimeters of of compacted snow that you would have to have to be able to ski on it. So it's like how, what elevation does that start? So a lot of ski resorts, some ski resorts go up to 2000 or 2000 few hundred meters. But a lot of them are actually existing at more like 1200 meters elevation. So if the snow line rises to like 15, 1600 meters, the first few hundred meters from where the resort is, uh, there'll be no snow. So that means they're either going to have to use snow cannons to like create artificial snow in those areas, which has a massive impact in terms of energy uh, and water use, or they have to like change how they do things and, and move, have more lifts doing lifts sort of over that part of the ground. So it's, yeah, the, the snow line is where the usable snow begins in terms of elevation, uh, and that rises as we see increasing temperatures. So every degree of climate change is something like 150, 100 to 150 metres increase in that snow level. And we've already seen in the Alps about two degrees of climate change, uh, of global warming, which is obviously more than the, the, the global average of 1.2-ish degrees. So yes, kind of the canary in the common, like you're seeing those impacts a lot quicker. Mm. It's frustrating, isn't it, that, that these things are kind of happening and we can kind of see them happening so clearly. Do you think it's magnified or amplified in the Alps with what we are seeing? Yeah, I think it is mainly due to that, like it being an, a quicker temperature increase than the average. So it's a more extreme change and also like, so the temperature literally is a greater increase than in other areas. And also just then it's more visible, like you see the glaciers retreating. If you have photos of where glaciers were 10 years ago to where they are today, it's, it's quite crazy. So you often don't find people living in snow resorts where they've spent significant time over the last few decades in them, sort of denying that man-made, uh, that climate change exists because you see it, like you you feel the, the, the difference in the length of the season, the glaciers disappearing and stuff like that. So. Um, yes, really tangible impacts there. Sort of bringing it then back to POW, like what mm-hmm. are the organization's goals and aspirations towards like climate change and protecting our winter sports and how are they going to go about it? Yeah, so we want to achieve net zero because that's what we know will fundamentally stop climate change. Ideally in the UK, we would see that by 2040, hopefully, um, because we know that if we globally get to net zero, by 2050, that's around a 50-50 chance of keeping to 1.5 degrees and therefore avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. So we want to sort of ensure we've got some space on that goal that if we miss by a few years, it wouldn't be such a big problem and to give us a better odds of keeping to 1.5. And as we led the Industrial Revolution and had high uh, high historical emissions, there's all good reasons to sort of aim high with our 
ambition on climate change. So that's yeah. what we want to achieve. In terms of how we go about it, it's really trying to push for that systemic action. So we heard in this podcast recently from Ian on sort of the importance of travel in terms of your impacts and a ski trip and things like that. How takes a really systemic view. So we're trying to, for example, with travel, trying to increase the options in terms of trains to go to ski resorts and run um, campaigns to make that happen and change, for example, the tax setup so that currently jet fuel isn't isn't taxed and therefore it's effectively subsidized compared to trains. So trying to make it so that trains are available and reasonably priced, this is the way that we want to go about making it that trains will be sort of the future of transport and therefore it won't it'll be easier to ask people to take it because it's not more niche and more expensive as it currently is. Yeah, I mean you look at getting a train, like I, I looked at getting trains up to, to Scotland and trying to take a couple of different trains and when I worked it out, it worked out about sixty pounds more expensive than it would be to drive. And even with today's current fuel prices, it's still way more expensive to jump on a train. The only benefit for me would have been just being able to sit down and actually look at the scenery around me rather than being sat in a car and being bored out of my mind driving. So yeah. yeah. The, the, I do the, I do rate the train though. I've got the rate the train to and from Scotland actually last week and it was yeah, the views are incredible. It's absolutely incredible conditions while I was up there and yeah I had a couple of amazing split board sessions and yeah like the train when it's working is great but yeah as you say it's, it can be really expensive I think like at the moment you just have to book it so far in advance to get those cheap advanced tickets but if we can just make trains cheaper as you say you get to enjoy the view carbon emissions obviously a lot lower you get to I was going up for work so I could work on the way so there's loads of inherent advantages of the train and that's mm. similar with going to the mountains in terms of you can get more ski days in it can take you much closer to resort, depending on which resort you're going to. So the transfer cost is actually lower. So often, like the cost of the flight compared to the cost of the train isn't a fair comparison because then you'll spend £100 on the, the transfer to the resort. So, yeah, that's sort of our, our, our approach anyway, is that systemic approach. And not just to travel, it's also in green finance and affecting politics more widely and uh, putting a, a, an end to new oil extraction. Mm. Obviously... The UK government granted more funding towards, I think it was gas exploration. Is that the kind of thing that you guys are going to be sort of campaigning against in the future? Yeah. Or are you already doing that now? Yes, yeah, so we have done that already. So we've uh, supported, often we're sort of trying to align with wider coalition works because we know we're currently in the UK relatively small. So um, we find out what coalitions like the Climate Coalition and Stop Climate Chaos Scotland are doing um, and then bring our own power outdoor spin to it. So uh, we've supported campaigns like Stop Cambo uh, and now Stop Rosebank, which are big oil fields that are um, getting licensed to ensure our voice is sort of contributing to a larger objective. So, yeah, we've already been supporting that. And I think there is going to be more of that with, yeah, as you're saying, the government's currently allowing, looking at giving uh, licenses to hundreds of new oil projects, as in like there'll be hundreds of new oil rigs. And the International Energy Agency says we need no new fossil fuel developments if we're going to keep to 1.5 degrees. So it's, yeah, that's pretty bonkers that we're opening up new, new oil fields and new oil developments. So that's definitely something we'll continue to, to campaign on because there's no good like creating more renewable energy if we just add it on top of fossil fuels. So how do we? How can an individual go about influencing that or 
at least educating themselves on that because i mean you've mentioned something there that i wasn't really aware of obviously about the there's no need to actually explore new fossil fuels mm. or actually it would be detrimental to explore more fossil fuel generation to if you know yeah. if we wanted to keep to 1.5 degrees so how can an individual sort of go about i don't know changing that or campaigning against it what's the best way so i think yeah, one thing is I'd really emphasize this sort of a need to find your community and your way of taking action that will make it a more sustainable in terms of longevity way that you can get involved with this movement. So if you're interested in the outdoors um, and you're listening to this, then please do come and like sign up for our newsletter at protectourwinters.uk or follow us on social media and you'll find out like in an ongoing way, lots of campaigns and more information on this. But if that's not your particular interest, there might be another NGO or campaigning group that's more relevant to your specific interests. So I think just joining Supporting a relevant group is sort of the most important thing because I wouldn't say if you take this one action and then don't do anything for the next for for a few months because you're not following the right groups, then then that's a big opportunity missed. I think. Yeah. But you also touched on education. Then education is a big part of what we do at Power UK. We run uh, certified carbon literacy training courses, which is a third party uh, standard from the Carbon Literacy Project. And we deliver an eight hour course all about the causes uh, and impacts of climate change, but just importantly, what we can do about it and how to take that effective action I talked about. So yeah, we run that for ski instructors and mountaineering instructors. We run it for general public. We run it for companies. We've even run it for athletes. So definitely, yeah, like getting educated. So you do know some of like the top ways that we can deal with it and how to spot those opportunities would be a great next step as well. I think that's absolutely right. And like you say, actually educating yourself on the subject a lot of people are unwilling to learn i think the more people listening to the the podcast will probably be very willing to learn actually sort of looking for new opportunities to to be enlightened and kind of open their eyes to what is exactly going on in the world around us so Mm. very difficult to like find the relevant information and sort of have it in a way that's not too heavy so that's something that's quite important to us is sort of talking about people and places we're trying to protect rather than leading with the sort of facts and figures on climate change so yeah it can be a difficult barrier to getting further educated that you don't want to just be hit around the head with statistics so um yeah we're definitely about trying to make it sort of accessible yeah and it, it can be quite depressing a lot of the time yeah, you know exactly. the, the more yeah the more i learn about our sort of current climate and the ecosystems that we're damaging the the more of a weight it places on you know on my shoulders definitely i i definitely feel it so mm. it's it's yeah. nice that sort of an organization recognizes that and isn't just trying to place facts and figures they're actually sort of putting the human behind it and sort of saying well you know if we do this actually we can achieve this so it, it's looking at the bright side of things i guess yeah we definitely so, want to leave it with empowerment as the like main goal like a lot of when we talk about the impacts of climate change you talk about you know there's going to be increased extreme weather and the snow line level rising and things like this but it's not like a set figure like climate change is going to happen and all of these things are going to be bad it's every point one of a degree of climate change we cause those things get worse so it's like that i find that really motivating that we can still keep to 1.5 and if we like every part that we do now has a positive impact on making it not bad in the future so and that's really where it's trying to to get us to 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 be motivated to take action this one's a it's a pretty sort of 
big question and I, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer it but do you think that if we stick to 1.5 that's enough or do you think that we should actually be looking at reversing some of the effects that we've had on our on our planet yeah it's a really difficult subject um i think that 1.5 is the right target for now because it's already very difficult if we sort of get there and stabilize then we could look at whether we can reduce that i think more the discussion that's happening on a global scale tends to be more like are we actually going to claim 1.5 as our long-term target but in the interim overshoot and then draw it back using negative emissions technologies and you'll see that in a lot of roadmaps for high emission companies and that's dangerous because of those tipping points that might kick in at slightly higher temperatures so you know methane emissions leaking from lakes in the sea causing higher like causing it to spiral upwards in a, in a feedback loop so i think it's more like can we avoid 1.5 being a let's go to let it go to two and then pull it back to 1.5 by 2100 then can we like then we should be aiming lower than 2050 but there's definitely like yeah there's de a lot more nuance in there of, of net zero and what does that mean in terms of emissions cuts versus negative emissions technologies that are unproven and costly and and this side of things it's, it's, that's why education is is kind of um can be intimidating because there's a lot of detail there yeah and it, it's interesting what you're saying about sort of negative emissions technology I think there's only one real true negative emission technology and it's the beautiful thing that we call nature and trees mm -hmm. and obviously it's not just about trees and sort of single well single habitat trees so that obviously just planting lots of pine forests or you know yeah, evergreens. Not yeah it, it, it creates a monochrome landscape and it doesn't actually help nature or biodiversity and we all know that by nature living more I think the word is symbiotically together as one will actually help a sort of landscape rewild itself in a lot of ways. So that also then contributes towards reversing some of the effects that we've had on our planet. Um, yep. So, so kind of, I, I realize that I'm taking it off on a bit of a tangent there no. and you sort of well, talked yeah. about the companies and what they are doing some of them as you know high carbon emitting companies what could a, a regular business do right now to let's say that the you know the director of or directors of the of a single company are super interested in the outdoors and they they want to try and protect that what could they potentially do to actually help prevent more more carbon being emitted and being a more sustainable business yeah, yeah so i think um <laughs> there's a lot of confusion between carbon neutral and net zero and these two terms actually mean something different now for businesses um in particular there's different standards for the two where carbon neutral is basically offsetting your way out of it and not necessarily cutting your emissions very much and net zero is in line with the science that we just simply can't absorb enough emissions to deal with our current rate of emitting them so it's like we've got a burst pipe and we're just offsetting would be like trying to use a mop to mop it all up whereas net zero is like let's seal off the pipe and then mop up the, the little remnants that we can't deal with so i think the main thing is setting that net zero ambition uh, and that's not something you're going to see being set as a 2025 very difficult even by 2030 true net zero but like for the net zero standards it's actually physical reduction of emissions by something like 90 percent because we think we can offset uh like truly offset truly absorb maybe 10 percent of of the emissions that the, we're globally currently emitting 
So that's big picture where we need organizations to be setting their, their aims. And I mean, the UK has a net zero 2050 target. So really you're just putting yourself in line with that. It's just, yeah, working out, starting to like commit to that and work out a bit of a roadmap towards it. But yeah, we have a, we have actually like outlined a, a program that's aimed specifically to help outdoor businesses with this journey called the Power Pledge. So if you're interested, come to our website and, and sign up for the Power Pledge and we'll, we'll talk you through in a lot more detail. There's sort of eight focus areas, one of which is committing to that net zero goal, but there's also um, like use of renewable energy and green finance within there. Okay. So you're talking about sort of green energy and green finance. Can you sort of elaborate on that and what that actually is to a business? Because obviously for an individual, it's quite clear they can change to a green provider and their finances but yeah. i think it's more specifically how you know what is sort of green finance i guess yeah so green energy wouldn't differ too much for a business in terms of like it's moving to green tariffs and avoiding fossil fuels for heating but there is definitely a hierarchy of like sourcing your renewable electricity in different ways is more beneficial than others but yeah i don't want to get into too much decent on that but uh, generally like if you're actually installing solar panels like that's definitely increasing renewable um, capacity whereas if you buy it from a tariff it's not necessarily as beneficial but yeah just move like those are available so there's no reason really not to move to 100% 100% renewables as as the ambition but in terms of green finance um, this is the fact that if you want to build a coal plant or a new oil rig you need loans and investment to do that so if we can take away that money, then they won't be able to make those things. So it's a really effective way and but a bit more difficult and a bit more indirect to communicate why it's impactful and how we go about it. Yeah, like within the Power Pledge, it's asking businesses to tell their banks that they're um, looking at their those banks' investments and potentially commit to change. If that bank is particularly bad, you can find great information on what banks are doing from bank.green for example and yeah like if you if we can shift money away from and stop investing in uh de invest in these banks that are dry like investing in new oil products then we can take away the money from doing those things so yeah there are some some banks particularly bad for it uh, and others are starting to make commitments to not fund this at all so we've got quite a few banks that are not funding new coal pro coal plants there's some that are starting to commit to no new oil rigs um quite a few are committed to net zero but like we also want to see that like what are they doing right now but as long as your bank is committing to net zero then they've got the right long-term ambition so yeah that's that's sort of what it means to a business and for an individual would be just check out what your bank's doing or what your pension is doing and move your money away from it if that bank and bank pension isn't living up to your expectations it's like way we've tried to communicate this is like while you're taking action on climate change you might be taking the train somewhere instead of driving or while you're out snowboarding and enjoying the outdoors like what is your money what is the world your money is building so you might be taking action but your money might be literally building coal plants so that's really what it's all about we also brought this into a campaign that we ran predominantly in the lead up to cop 26 and it's still running on a website called divest the dirt which is yeah exactly that but it's specifically targeting local councils so local councils actually have tens of billions of pounds in fossil fuels so it's helping people write to their local councillors there's an easy letter writing form on our website ask your council to stop putting their pensions directly into fossil fuels and then we can reduce the amount of these that can be funded 
Okay. You, you mentioned about obviously some of the banks that are sort of still investing in fossil fuel production and sort of fossil fuel exploration. I don't know if you'll be able to tell us, but is, is there any that are particularly bad? If this potentially reaches one of them, it's it's always a good thing, in my opinion, to kind of call those people out and actually try and get them to change their ways. So is, is there any that are particularly bad for the investment in fossil fuels? Uh, so there's a lot of information on this on fossil banks website and um i know one that is has a bit of a bad reputation in the uk is barclays they're larger in terms of coal than other banks um and the one that comes up top in terms of fossils fossil fuel funding globally on fossil banks is jp morgan chase who have chase as a like a retail bank so there's a two to watch out for okay so they're the ones that are advertising heavily in the uk at the moment aren't they chase bank yeah exactly they're yeah sort of doing a push into retail banking. Okay, so I, th- I think it's actually a really good thing to be able to sort of openly discuss these things because obviously you've, you've mentioned about the resources there that we can all go and find, which is good. But it's also a case of trying to get people to actually go and sort of seek out those resources as well. Think, yeah, so you know, Chase we, we, in the last 10 years has put the best part of, well, $380 billion into fossil fuels. Wow. Uh, it just that shows the amount of money we're talking about here that's actually directly doing this work. There's no wonder that fossil fuel production is, well, is so lucrative. If if that's the kind of money that they're getting invested into them, and then obviously mm-hmm. fuel prices are going up for all fuels as well. And it's, yeah, so they're kind of getting a double-edged sword in, in that respect. They're getting all of this investment yeah. and also being able to reap the profits from it as well, which is, is ludicrous, especially when we're in a yeah. world that, realistically we need to drastically reduce our fossil fuel consumption and and go Mm. to a more renewable state that really cuts to the heart of climate action of like fossil fuels are really driving climate change and yet our cop like the agreement documents that come out of the the cop meetings which are the the global international meetings on on climate change like they, they can barely bring themselves to name and say that we need to end fossil fuels and i think that's in large part due to the lobbying that's done by those companies and yeah it's a really big issue for uh sustainability <laughs> making sure that we really just deal with fossil fuels and, and stop them at source absolutely i mean it, it it almost makes you a little bit well it does make you angry it doesn't almost or a little bit it makes you angry that that this is still happening and yeah one thing we- i wanted to stay in terms of like you what about the uk specifically like what what sh- can we campaign on or what are the specific like current issues on this topic so recently we've had the windfall taxes on fossil fuels so on energy rather than in the uk so they've added additional taxes on north sea oil and gas extraction but there was they they rushed the like the consultation through really quickly and what was really frustrating is if you like there's a it's an increased tax on the profits but if you reinvest in north sea oil and gas then 90 percent of that tax gets paid back to you so actually like we're incentivizing those companies to reinvest in the north sea oil and gas but we don't need we don't want new oil and gas um extraction if we're going to keep to 1.5 degrees and like they didn't even open up to you could reinvest in renewable energy was if you reinvest in oil and gas then you get some of that rebate you get some of that windfall tax back as a rebate and when you add all the taxes together you can actually be be getting paid positive taxes in total so we really are like when we're talking about 
how our tax structure is set up to incent like not to incentivize fossil fuels this is what we're talking about that you can literally be paid net taxes um to, re- to operate in the north sea so it's, it's pretty bonkers and these are the sorts of things that we're trying to campaign around bring forward in a like th- if take this single action right to your mp about this one action um these are sorts of specific policy that are being brought in that we can try and change that's that's wild i I didn't actually know that you could gain net taxes by investing in something which is going to continue to deteriorate our environment and ultimately the planet. So that, I guess, kind of bunks in it. It, it it's mind blowing, but it it just shows that you don't know what you don't know, and I think that's part of what power able to do is actually sort of educate and and get that information out there to disseminate it to people who might not necessarily have the time or the inclination to actually go sort of go out of their way and, and look for this kind of thing. So it could sort of brings us back to the advocacy side of things. So we have gone off on a bit of a tangent, which is is brilliant, but I wanted to bring it back and sort of find out as an individual yourself, like what excites you most about the sustainability landscape right now? Like is it a technology, is it an initiative or you know what might that be? I think proliferation of companies setting those net zero targets and having a specific roadmap for that is really big. I think it has been a wild west for a few years in terms of claims on sort of carbon neutral and net zero and confusion between them. But you're definitely starting to see companies that have a that 90% reduction target and actually know like this is where our emissions will come from and this is how we can hit that target. So that'll give starts to give me a lot more confidence that we like not just can hit it but that we know how we can hit it and are actually managing our way towards it but that's something that's only really suitable for for larger uh, organizations but that's great to see and i think just the the sort of the interest in this area and the fact that lots of different communities are getting involved so i think it's easier like i think mps if you look at the interviews with them and studies done it's kind of they see it's sort of a subset or an, a relatively niche portion of the uh, of their electorate that cares about these issues that much but even though even those studies show that the general public do care and want more urgent action on climate change so i think that's where power's role is is really has a lot of potential and, and other similar groups that are adding to that base that wants ambitious climate action so they don't just see the same organizations talking about this topic but they also see snowboarders and hikers and faith groups and all sorts of different community groups stepping forward on this issue that's how we'll show that it is like a big cross-section of the electorate that want that ambitious action and really deliver climate um like urgent ambitious climate action um so that's that's sort of a big one for me and and why why i'm like really proud to be working for protect our winters yeah i mean i think the the net zero landscape is is incredible and obviously for the bigger companies committing to net zero almost seems a little bit easier because they've got the resource that they can kind of dedicate towards that you know they've got managers who manage their sort of production line if it was Mm. a manufacturing company and that manager can actually look at the economies that they can make within that within carbon emissions and sort of overall emissions terms and they've got other facilities managers which can actually look at sort of their energy providers etc yeah and actually dedicated sustainability managers i think not whether you do or don't have one of those can make a big difference to sort of just how much resource and time you have to put on this. So we're often just talking businesses trying to help them unblock this issue. If they're a smaller business, like at least if you can't have a dedicated member of staff, can you at least like 
make it officially a part of someone's role and give them a day a week a couple of days a month to to work on this stuff so it does it's not done completely sort of off the side of the desk because it's, it's just too important an issue to not have someone doing something on even if it's not suitable to have a, a dedicated member of staff and, and that's kind of it feeds directly into what i was going to ask so how could a smaller business with less resource go about building in change to their organization they might not be able to commit to net zero but what, what might they actually be able to do within their organization yeah i think it it, ma- it matters so much what industry you're in as to what's possible um so yeah if you're an outdoor business i'd say like come sign up for power pledge and like chat it f- through further with us because <laughs> that's the difficulty is it so often can be like cost is the barrier to entry of, of getting started on this so we're really trying to make it sort of cheap and easy to to make progress on this and there's definitely room for consultants and making the detailed work happen but it can often be like quite expensive to uh get, just yeah get started so i think just get taking the, the first steps is the main thing like committing to do something give someone uh, a member of staff some time to focus on it and yeah try to make specific like within your footprint actual cuts and not going to the easy easy step of offsetting I mean, offsetting is is very easy. And the other sad thing about offsetting is that more recently, we're kind of learning about the some of the companies which have been set up to accept funding as carbon offsetting and, you know, actually able to sort of accept all the, the carbon credit have been sort of investing into renewable energy like wood pellets that will be burned on a mass scale to sort of create energy and power. And those aren't realistically actually going to help in reducing the carbon. Obviously, it's a it's a renewable source of energy, but it's not a sustainable source of energy. So, obviously, educating businesses on what are actual suitable carbon credits that they can sort of you know use to offset those small amounts that hopefully they've you know reduced already, but still have some which they're they're going to have to offset with carbon credits just educating people on that i think is going to be really important as well so it kind of nicely brings me towards my last question for you dom so if there was one thing that our listeners could take away from today's episode what would you want it to be i think the first step is always the hardest so just to get started somewhere and and try and do it as part of a group so if if you're interested in outdoor sports then work with us at power if it's if, if that's not the case then sort of yeah just find find a community that can support you with it so you're not working alone and so it can bring forwards to you those effective actions of campaigns so don't yeah don't worry too much about like if you your personal life isn't perfect in terms of carbon emissions no one's no one's really perfect on that issue we all have a carbon footprint so yeah just taking action over apathy is the way we can say it and, and progress over perfection so I think, yeah, let's, let's all do what we can and, and head in the right direction. So it's just make a start. It doesn't matter yeah. how small it is, get started and get going. Yeah. Cool. I think, I think that's a really nice way to look at it. And the action over apathy and progress over perfection is, is probably the perfect summary of, I guess, what power is looking for. Yeah. So I think that summarizes it really nicely. So was there anything else that you kind of wanted to touch on in today's episode? Yeah, I guess an interesting reflection on the point of like, what's my most positive thought? There's also 
um one thing we have to watch out for and i think the we're starting to see some uh sports washing or like greenwashing using sports so that's one thing i want to be wary of um as we go forward so if you're in a sporting organization maybe please be wary of partnering with fossil fuel companies and, and do sort of get in touch for further information about how that gives those fossil fuel businesses the social license to operate and so on if, if you're having those discussions because it's something we've seen already a couple of examples of in the last few months okay what kind of partnerships are we talking about is it like sponsorship deals or yeah yeah so the, that work? um i think the the big biggest one was the british cycling and shell sponsorship oh really so I've, yeah so you've got I've the not, shell logo on there um, i've not even seen that was, yeah so we're, we're, yeah, we're, that's one we've been sort of discussing with them but yeah i think there are others starting to show up so it's it's just uh i just wanted to <laughs> raise that point and say like let's not see that proliferate too much please <laughs> absolutely i think if i mean shell's main business is obviously fossil fuel uh production and sales um if they were partnering on a different basis of generating more renewables and a partnership where that actually kickstarts their in you know huge investment into renewables and and shift their company perhaps that's a more positive thing but if if there's no such commitment there then absolutely yes i think the mm. the partnership couldn't couldn't really it's not going to be beneficial for for either of them i don't think or maybe it is for shell who knows <laughs> yeah, but yeah, going, but it's, yeah i think it's easy for shell to talk about we're investing this number of billions in renewables but if you look at that as a like percentage of their overall overall spend it's really small so these are the, the where it would be worth engaging with some environmental organizations if you're considering these things before progressing yeah absolutely i think it's it's difficult for well i guess in this example british cycling will have done their due diligence at looking at the, the partnership deal but you know are they actually considering what that means and you know what they're actually endorsing because obviously shell are endorsing british cycling which is lovely but what are british cycling endorsing you know and as a as a british cycling member i'm kind of like oh i didn't even know this was happening so it really does open open your eyes to actually the the partnerships that are kind of going on out there so yeah that is a that is a shame but i think you know we've we've covered some pretty sensitive topics and some real big hitters there as well. But I can only thank you for being on today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope our listeners enjoy it too. So thank you very much, Thanks, Dom, for, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and I can't wait to release the next one. If you haven't already, like and subscribe and you'll be kept up to date with all the latest releases.